Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Today I want to continue uh, our series on healing. This will be Healing 4. Last week in Healing 3, I shared with you six observations. I told you that, um, that Mark is a man of few words, and as you read through the Gospel of Mark, I'm encouraging you during the week to read through Mark's Gospel, um, because that's where, I'm, that's where I'm working through. Uh, with this emphasis, how, what did, how did Jesus heal the sick? What did he do? What didn't he do? How did healing take place uh, in the Gospel? And, um, and so my first observation was that Mark is a man of a few words. And so as you read through Mark, and as I've been reading through it, my encouragement is to read carefully, because he'll, he's, he's concise and to the point, and moves on to the next thing. Read carefully, because you could easily miss something. The other thing I told you, a second observation, was uh, Jesus moved around quite a bit in the early stages of his ministry. As much as 125 miles he moved around in just the first 30 verses of Mark's Gospel. He, he embraced the whole concept of itinerant. He was a man on the move. I told you last week that between Jesus' baptism and the beginning of his ministry, he experienced wilderness, temptation, and high levels of spiritual warfare. Maybe as we go on our spiritual journeys, we ought not be too surprised if we also experience wilderness seasons, times of significant temptation, and, and high levels of spiritual warfare. Doesn't mean we've done anything wrong. Doesn't mean we're in sin. Doesn't mean we've been punished. Jesus did everything right. But he still experienced those things. Sometimes it just comes with territory. We looked at the fact that Jesus preached with authority. And we looked at what he did and what he didn't do. Um, Jesus healed uh, with only six words. He cast a demon out of someone. He said to them, be quiet, come out of him. Six words, and the deed was done. Didn't seem like it took a long time. Didn't have to, you know, didn't have to say <laughs> words and words and words and words and words and words. He just right to the point, and, and the demon left. The text told us that Jesus said it sternly in the NIV. Uh, the New American Standard uses the, the word rebuked. And what is, you know, and I asked the question, does that mean he yelled? And I don't think it means necessarily that he yelled. Loud doesn't always equal anointed. How many of you as kids remembered your mother screaming? And you knew that there were certain levels of scream, right? The first scream, yeah, nobody has to respond to that. The second one, the third one, when it's blood curdling and her eyes are popping out of her head, smoke's coming out of her ears. Oh yeah, that's the one I have to listen to, right? I don't think Jesus had to yell to exercise his authority. I've met people with great authority, and they could whisper in what they wanted to get done. It got done. And maybe it's one of the things I've enjoyed about the vineyard over the decades I've been involved with it. Is we seem to have embraced this concept that, that loud does not necessarily mean anointed, right? Sometimes loud is just loud, right? But if there's anointing there, if there's the presence, uh, the manifestation of the presence of God with authority, it doesn't necessarily have to be loud. And we've seen that, the, that Jesus, the man was healed. Jesus was extremely effective. The evil spirit left. The people were amazed. The news about Jesus spread quickly over the region. That's in Mark chapter 1, verse 28. And the man was healed. He, he was delivered. And deliverance is one aspect of healing. The kingdom of God was both uh, pro was proclaimed, it was demonstrated, and the kingdom was advanced. And the last point I made last week was that Jesus' authority flew, flowed from submission. He was submitted to the Father and the Spirit, and out of that act of submission, he was able to operate in great authority. So today I, I want to look at healing four, and uh, I want to cover three events from uh, the next few chapters in Mark's Gospel. The first event was that there was a party at Peter's house. The second event is uh, Jesus prays. And the third is a man with leprosy is healed. 
At the end, we're going to have a ministry time again, and so I'm going to leave opportunity for people to share words of knowledge like we've been doing the past few weeks. So for those of you, that, that gift works in you. Um, and, and for those of you, if you'd like to try, this is a place where it's, it's, face, it, it's safe to experiment. Uh, it's safe to make mistakes. Uh, start listening now and see if God will give you a word of knowledge to share uh, at the end of my message. So, uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll begin with this, this first event. So, Father, I thank you for this time together. I pray that you would use me to speak your words to your people in a way that will be life-giving to them, that will encourage them and uh, inspire them with hope today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So, the first event is a party at Peter's house. I'm going to cover verses uh, 29 to 34 for this first event. Here we see it's a private setting. Uh, the last time Jesus cast out a demon, it was rather public. It was in a synagogue where he cast a demon out of a, a member of that, that synagogue. So, um, But Jesus didn't perform signs and wonders necessarily just for the multitudes or to draw a crowd. Though when healing takes place, when signs and wonders take place, um, it captures people's attention and they want to show up for it. So and, um, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus used no words at all to perform this next um, healing. So verses 29 to 31 of Mark 1, this is what it says. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So at least in Mark's account, Jesus healed just with a touch. He didn't say a word. He just he touched her hand, and as a result of touching her hand, the fever left her body. Um, Sometimes if you study scripture and you see an event like this, it's helpful to look at the other Gospels, Luke or John or Matthew. may add um, a few more details to the story. Luke does add some extra details. This is what he says in verses 38 and 39 of Luke 4. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up, and at once began to wait on them. So we, we have a little extra detail here that Mark didn't add. Mark is a man of few words. Luke gave a little bit more detail. He tells us that not only did Jesus touch uh, Peter's mother-in-law's hand, but he rebuked the fever, and the fever left. Rebuke mean, here means to reprove or to censure severely, to admonish or to charge sharply. Um, I remember when my daughter was very young, maybe maybe three years old. I'm out in the front yard with her, and where we lived, it was Queens Village, uh, was the name of the place in New York City. And um, wasn't the best neighborhood in the world. It was a little bit rough. It was the first house we ever owned. So it was kind of like a beginning for us. The neighborhood was kind of rough. We had some stray dogs in the neighborhood. Sometimes they would roam in a pack. But they were wild dogs. Nobody owned them, and they were kind of dangerous. So I'm playing in the front yard with my daughter. I think I'm doing some gardening, and she's out there helping Daddy, like those pictures I showed last week. She looked to be my little helper. And I look up, and here I'm standing here, and Lisa's here, and this wild dog is over here. And so there's about equal amount of space uh, with Lisa in the middle, and I'm on one far end, and the dog's on the other. Um, either the dog or I could get to Lisa in a couple of seconds, but I couldn't guarantee you who's going to get there first. And just looking at this dog, this was a nasty dog. And so in, I rebuked the dog is what I did. In my sternest voice, I told that dog to go away, to stop and to leave. This wasn't a prayer command. This was a desperate father trying to look scarier than the dog did. Okay, But... It's a really good example. I rebuked the dog. Guess what the dog did? They left. They left. And, and Lisa was safe. Brought her in the house right, right after that, you know? So I rebuked the dog. I don't like to tell the stories too often, but I have had personal encounters where I've ministered to people who are demonized. 
and had to address a demon, and it left. I, I can remember this one young gal, um, this same house at Queens Village, came over, uh, ministered to us, praying for her, and she had to be, I, I'm probably not as big as I am now, but I was easily over 200 pounds then. And this gal, she was tiny, maybe she, 100 pounds soaking wet, maybe. And we're sitting on the couch, and I'm praying for her. I didn't really feel the presence of God. And we're, I'm holding her hands, her two hands and my two hands. And the next thing I know, this little girl has this supernatural amount of strength, and she's just dragging me across the couch. Like, she's got a death grip on my hands, um, but she's terrified and is trying to pull away. Now, this is someone who's become a friend and been in our house countless times. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, what is going on here? I'm kind of confused at first. And uh, I just continue to pray. No exaggeration. Her face changed into the face of a pig. I'm not exaggerating. It, it, her face morphed into what looked like a pig. And so at that point, I, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I realized, oh, this is demonic. It's supernatural strength. Her face changing like that. Weird voices coming out. I rebuked it. I told her to leave, and it did. I think we battled for a minute, maybe two. And when it was over, she was like, what was that? And I'm like, mm, I'm really not sure, but we could talk about it, you know. But it was a demon, and I rebuked it sternly and cast it out and it left. Just one other, one other story along these lines. Nadine and I went and visited an old friend, someone I've been friends with for many, many years, and we were traveling, and uh, we're near at a conference or something, not far from where she lived, and she wanted to meet with us. She wanted prayer. And so we met with her. I think she came to our hotel room or something. And so we sat and we're praying for her. And again, I could tell that there was some demonic activity by the look on her face, her eyes, her voice. And so I uh, began to try to uh, address this thing and cast it out. Well, um, this demon did not want to leave. And so this is what it did. It put her to sleep. She just went unconscious. And just put her head, they were sitting at a desk, I think, right? She put her head down on the desk and wouldn't, you know, was kind of playing possum, like, I'm not going to respond to you. And so we just, we prayed more and told this thing to get out, and eventually it left too. But um, it was kind of like playing uh, hide and seek with us. And, seen many other things dealing with demons over the years. They growl, they hiss, they threaten. I had one ball of fist say, I'm going to punch you right in the face. I said, oh, no, you're not. When they misbehave like this, I just look at them and I say, stop it. Just stop it in the name of Jesus. Kind of like I treated that dog in my front yard. Stop it. Go away. And I'll bind it up and cast it out in the name of Jesus and tell it to go where, wherever Jesus says to go. Leave this poor person alone. So it comes with territory. It's part of what happens. It's not a regular thing. I mean, I certainly don't see demons on, under every rock. And I'd say 98, 99% of the time I pray for people, there's no demonic activity. But when it happens, we deal with it. Kind of like I dealt with that dog in the front yard. So Peter's mother-in-law, back to the text here. Uh, Jesus touches her. He rebukes the fever. And the fever leaves. And her response to being healed is to serve. Uh, no doubt it was out of gratitude. You know, she feels better. And, you know, as, as probably the, the oldest woman in the house, um, this is what she did. This has probably been her whole life. Of course she served. There are guests in the house. There's an honored guest in the house. It kind of remembers, reminds me of my mother-in-law. All she ever wanted to do was feed us, you know, was, just wanted to put more food and more food and move more food on the table until you were full. Of course she served. It's probably where Nadine gets it. You get it from your mother. If you ever eat in my house, you don't leave hungry, right? There's always way, way too much food. Anybody see the pictures on Facebook? I put those pretzels. She made these soft pretzels last night. Oh, my goodness, they were so good. I ate three of them. The first one was because I was hungry. The other two was just because they tasted so good. <laughs> but she got up and she served. And... I think that's awesome. I love how they add that detail. This was culture. This was their life. And now we see that Jesus ministers uh, at Peter's house. This is after sundown on the, on the Sabbath. From last week, we covered verse 21. In Mark 1, 21, the text tells us, they went to Capernaum, 
And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to preach. They're on the Sabbath. What Jesus did, as was probably common for him to do, is they, they went to church. They went to the Sabbath. And, and Jesus began to teach there. Verse 29, just a few verses later, tells us that as soon as they left the synagogue, so it's still the same day, same group of people, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon Peter. Now, apparently, Jesus ignored the Sabbath restrictions on travel and activity. He traveled to Peter's house, and he healed the sick. And people from all over came to Peter's house that day. They brought the sick and the demonized to be healed and to be set free. Because if you remember, verse 28, we looked at earlier. Earlier, um, the text tells us that word had spread quickly throughout the region, throughout the whole community, about what had happened earlier that morning at the synagogue, how Jesus had cast a demon out of this synagogue member. And what had happened that morning got the whole town talking about it. And now all these people who've heard the buzz all day, they show up in mass at Peter's house that evening. Verses 32 and 33 of chapter 1 say, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demonized, and the whole town gathered at that door. At the door. It had been a busy day. Mark 1.34 tells us that Jesus healed many who had various diseases and also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So here many, the word many means much or many or it means large. It's like a whole bunch of people, a whole lot of people showed up, the whole town showed up. So what do you think that looked like to Peter's house? I'm thinking Peter's a fisherman. I don't know. Let's say fishing's good. Maybe he's got a decent-sized house. It sounds like Simon lives there as well. His mother-in-law lives there. So it's maybe a multi-family dwelling. But a whole bunch of people show up at the house. Nobody planned for this. They, they're probably just going to hang out after church, maybe get a bite to eat. I don't think there was any... Uh, Nobody, had, nobody made announcements. Nobody handed out flyers say, Healing Revival, Peter's house tonight. I think they were just doing life together. And people heard about this Jesus guy doing these amazing things, and they all showed up. So what do you think it looked like? I think it looked like, I think by the time the night was reaching a peak, I'm thinking it's a rocking party at Peter's house. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a whole bunch of people show, half the town shows up at Tom and Nadine's house, you know, sometime later tonight. And God, in his great mercy, <laughs> God, in his great mercy, starts healing people and delivering people from, from demons. Now, I'm thinking maybe the first or second healing or deliverance, there's some ooh or ahs or maybe people are quiet. I'm thinking, it says many people got healed. Many people got delivered. I'm thinking as the night went on, human beings, who they are, I'm thinking people are getting excited. I'm thinking after a while, there's cheers and shouts and clapping, and people are excited, people who could, maybe couldn't clap or dance before. They're doing those kind of things. And wouldn't you be excited? What if you had a loved one with you? They've been sick all this time, and now they're up and about. And they would, Man, people would be excited. It would be awesome. I'm thinking Peter's house was a rocking party before that night was over. Person after person's healed and delivered. I could just imagine this crescendo of joy and of excitement in life. It probably went on all night long. If I'm there and 25 people got healed in front of me and I'm not healed yet, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm thinking something good's happening here. I'd have stayed that house all night long. How about you? Right? We might stay till sunup. I wouldn't want to leave. And this is my heart. Lord, do it again. You did it then. Do it again. Do it here. <laughs> do it with us. It was a healing party at Peter's house. I'd like to be at a party like that. Make it so, Lord. So that's the first event. Jesus healed many people. It began with just, cast, uh, just rebuking a fever out of a sweet little old lady. And the next thing you know, before the night's over, many people are healed, many people are delivered. 
doesn't give us any detail or instruction on how Jesus did it, but just looking at the New Testament narrative, I'm betting there wasn't some magic formula. I'm thinking Jesus is pretty creative. Who he would, who he would touch and who he'd say something to and people got healed. Second event, Jesus prays. This is verses 35 to 39 of Mark chapter 1. Verse 35 says, very early in the morning. So Jesus did synagogue stuff on the Sabbath, right? Went to Peter's house after that, did ministry all night long. Where many people got healed and delivered. And then verse 35 takes us to the next day. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I wonder if this is one of the secrets to Jesus' astonishing effectiveness early in the morning and after such a long day and a long night I've never done the things described here that Jesus has done I know what it's like to minister over many many hours I used to travel and teach and pray for people and do dream stuff and prophetic stuff and I can tell you after a 12 hour day ministering to people Especially if you, if you pray for a whole bunch of people before it's over, you're wiped out. I am. I am just absolutely wiped out at the end of it. I, I can only imagine Jesus' time. He's got, how could he not be? Such a long day and a long night. None of us would have had any problem if Jesus had decided he was just going to sleep in the next day. You know, Saturday was rough. Sunday's my day off. I'm just going to sleep in. But he chose instead to have communion, to commune with the Father and the Spirit over sleep. So it's very early in the morning. While it was still dark, what does that mean? Before sunup, that's early. I don't care where you live. If you're up and about before the sun's up, right, that's early. Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off. And he found a quiet place, a solitary place, the scripture tells us. Now listen to me. I, I repeat this over and over and over again because it's, it's just one of my rock-solid core values, and it's this. Christianity is all about relationship. I think if we can read Scripture with fresh and new eyes, we would see the relational dynamic to everything that Jesus did. And he was relational, yes, horizontally, with his disciples and with the people he ministered to, but primarily in the first place. He was relational with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The purpose of Christianity is relationship. And Jesus demonstrates the importance and value for us here. This isn't a discipline. It's not a rule or a command or a regulation. It's a passionate desire. It's love-driven. Jesus loves communing with the other two members of the Trinity. Kind of reminds me. I mean, Dean and I first started dating. I didn't have to discipline myself to spend time with her. It wasn't like I, I had to be uh, regulated or commanded or instructed or, you know, scheduled to be able to spend time with her. Right? It was my every waking thought is when do I get to see her again? And I would go see her as much as I could. And when I wasn't with her, I would think about it. And if I could, when I wasn't with her, I'd be on the phone with her. Why? It was my passionate desire. I'm thinking this is what drives Jesus. Not that he's disciplined and this is his burden or responsibility as a dutiful son. I'm going to make sure I get that morning prayer time. And no, he's ministered all night and he can't wait to connect again with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So this is no burden for Jesus. This is not a responsibility. It's a delight. Think about your best friend. Most of us have a best friend. Who's your best friend? Is it a burden to see them? Is it a responsibility to see them? Or is it a delight every time you get to have some FaceTime with them? One-on-one -on -one time. In-person time. It's a delight to be with that person. But here the text tells, I think that's what it was like for Jesus. He's meeting with his best friend. He's meeting with the other two members of the Trinity. I think for far too long, 
we've misrepresented what our relationship with God should be like. At least in my journey, man, there was early seasons as a young Christians, Christian, it was just pounded into me. This was my job. This was my responsibility. And if I wanted to be a good Christian, this is what I needed to do. Is it any surprise? I would resent it at some points in my journey. Nobody ever communicated to me that this was supposed to be about love or intimacy or relationship. I tell you what, responsibility will take us just, just so far. Passion will take us to the end of the journey. Okay. So it tells us it's a solitary place. It means lonely or desolate or uninhabited. It's a good, wise, and healthy thing for us to find such places where we can commune with God. There are so many distractions in the world today. I mean, nearly everybody has a cell phone. You could walk down any street in Charlottetown and you see people like this, right? They're down looking at, at their phone. Go into a room full of teenagers, right? Every one of them be looking. There's distractions with us 24-7. That, I mean, it doesn't even, even include, like, the Internet and television just because that phone's in, in our hand. I'm as guilty of it as anybody, you know? This thing's practically surgically attached to, to my right hand. There are a lot of distractions. And so Jesus knew the value of this solitary time. Now, I think it's good and important for us to do things like Sunday morning where we join together with others in the presence of God. But there's much in our Christian life that can only be learned and experienced and accomplished in those solitary places alone with God. These times, these quiet times, these alone times with God have been profound, profoundly significant for me personally and for the churches that I've pastored. Much good has come out of it. Now this seems to be what Jesus is doing here early on this Sunday morning. This seems to be more than the pray without ceasing kind of prayer that 1 Thessalonians 5.17 exhorts us to. There is, there is a prayer without ceasing. There is <clears throat> living our lives where we're in continual connection and communication with God. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. You know, to go through our day and just shoot up prayers and, and, and commune back and forth with God. I, I, I do that. It's become part of, part of my daily existence. I talk to God all the time. But don't you think Jesus did that also? I think the whole praying without ceasing, I think he was in continual communication with God. And yet still, even though that was the case for him, he still made time to find these solitary places where he can go and commune with God. I'm thinking if it was important for him, it's probably important for us too. Now why did Jesus pray? I don't think he prayed because he was weak. I just think he prayed to connect to commune. And I think it was that communion with the Trinity that gave him life and strength. I think it was the source of his strength, that relationship. I think Jesus knew all too well the pressures and busyness of the ministry, what it felt like. And I got to tell you what, I know lots of folks over the years, I've lived this journey myself, sadly for many. The pressures and the ministry and the busyness of ministry uh, all too often doesn't drive us to those solitary places of prayer, but those those times kind of get pushed aside because we're just too busy doing stuff with God to meet with God. And when that happens, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy for the person. It's usually unhealthy for their family as well. So what did Jesus pray for? Well, we're not told specifically, but I think we could probably make some fairly good guesses as much as anything, Jesus used this time of prayer for that close, intimate communion with God and Spirit. But I think we can safely assume that Jesus prayed for himself. Like any good shepherd, he probably prayed for his disciples. Maybe he prayed for those people that he met and ministered to the previous night. I'm thinking they'd still be on his heart and his mind. Maybe he prayed for those people that he would meet in the coming day. Maybe he was getting some insider revelation for that. But 
We don't know. Those are all, I think, educated guesses, reasonable guesses. But what we do know from the text is that the fruit of this particular prayer time, this early morning time of prayer, was guidance, direction, and strategy for the day ahead. Verses 36 and 37 tells us that the disciples go looking for Jesus. He got up early in the morning. Apparently, they didn't, nobody knew he left. They wake up in the morning, boom, Jesus is gone. Maybe they're a little bit concerned. They're looking for him everywhere. Verses 36 and 37 says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. <clears throat> if it got to the point where everyone's looking for him, they didn't know where he was, right? <laughs> and it's probably taken a little while before they found him. Jesus responds to them in verse 38. Jesus replied, he said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. Jesus prayed in the morning and he got direction for what to do the coming day. His direction was to go somewhere else to nearby villages so he could preach because this is why he came. He came to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. Now I find it interesting that Jesus didn't stay in that town and ride the wave of his newfound popularity, right? I mean, some hot things happened the night before the whole town. Scripture tells us, showed up at Peter's house, right? Excitement happened in synagogue that morning, and there's a party at Peter's house that night. A lot of people get healed. A lot of people get delivered. I'll tell you what, most church planters I know, or itinerant ministers, they'd have ride that wave for all it was worth. They never would have left. They'd have put a sign out in the front door, you know, meeting tonight, 6 o'clock, bring your friends, right? That would have been... That would have been logical, reasonable response to what happened. But Jesus prayed that morning. And God gave him specific direction that went against what would be logic. Normal, reasonable logic. His ways are not our ways. <laughs> his ways are higher than our ways. And in this case, God's way was to go somewhere else. And they did. I love that Jesus did this. I love that Jesus prayed. For Jesus, fellowship with God, with God was something more than just the Sabbath. Right? He, he, he went to the synagogue services on the Sabbath and worshipped with the rest of the community. But he had other times where he would cultivate and foster and engage in his relationship with God. Jesus wanted to be alone, to pray. I know sometimes when I want to be alone to pray and be with God is so that I can pour out my heart to Him. I like to find a quiet place, a secluded place. Ideally for me, I enjoy finding a place that where I'm surrounded by the beauty of God's creation. It inspires me. In most places we've lived, I've found something like that. A place where I can pray aloud and no one else is around to hear me. I like to say my prayers out loud because I've talked to him like I would talk to any one of you. And sometimes he responds. It feels more authentic, more genuine for me that way. I remember we lived in New York City. I found a park that was, had long trails on it. I think back on it now. It must have been God protecting me because it would have been a great place to mug somebody. <laughs> but it was a secluded trail, on a long trail in the park, and I would go deep into this trail until there was nobody else around. And God and I would talk. And when we lived in Washington State, the, the Columbia River cut through town. They had this wonderful walking trail. And some points of the day, there was no one else out there. And I'd walk that trail, and God and I would talk. And we have... What, we have 600 miles of beach here on PEI? You can just about always find a secluded beach somewhere here on this island. And I love to just go and pray and speak along with God. I think maybe, maybe Jesus didn't need it, but I do. I think it's out of these times of this communion, this, this prayer, this connection, these intimate times where the ability to see what the Father's doing uh, grows in us. It gets cultivated in us. 
John 5, 19, this is what Jesus said. He says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does. Jesus couldn't do any of this by himself. He connected with the father that morning and, that, and the, what he came away with is they needed to go somewhere else. I don't know. If I hadn't had a prayer time where God said to go somewhere else, I probably would have just stayed where I was thinking, hey, this is good. I got a hot spot. But Jesus spent that time. I wonder if for Jesus too, that his ability to see what the Father's doing was cultivated in those times where they connected together in relationship. Would you like to be able to see what the Father's doing? I'm thinking our ministry effectiveness would grow exponentially if we could just see what the Father's already doing and then do it with him. And sometimes I pray that, God, what are you doing? And how can we do it with you? I'm figuring that's a pretty good prayer, right? If I could just know what he's already doing, instead of just trying to come up with some good idea or ask him to bless it, Lord, what are you already doing? And then how can I do it with you? Jesus had eyes to see. He had eyes to see because he was connected with the Father. If Jesus prayed, we surely need to pray. If Jesus valued alone time with the Father, maybe it would be valuable to us as well. If it increased Jesus' effectiveness to do this stuff, well, maybe it will increase ours as well. So that's the second event. Third, third and final event. A man with leprosy is healed. These are verses 40 to 45 of Mark chapter 1. Verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. So a leper came to Jesus. This is a big deal. This is a huge violation of social and cultural and religious protocols. If you were a leper, you did not approach anyone who wasn't a leper in public. As a matter of fact, you were trained, you were harshly disciplined to run the other way. Um, and you'd have to yell out, unclean, unclean. That was, that was the phrase that they have to use, unclean and and get away from the people who didn't have this disease. Leprosy was one of the most horrific diseases of the ancient world. Physically, emotionally, socially, and relationally devastating disease. Along with the, the painful physical affliction. People were, they were social and religious outcasts, completely. You know, even today, there are some 15 million people across the world with leprosy. Mostly in third world nations. It's shocking to me we haven't eradicated that disease yet. Verse 41. Interesting verse. It captured my attention. It says, Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Now, I've read, like many of you, I've read through Scripture countless times. I don't know how many times I've read through Mark's Gospel. I never noticed the word indignant before. Never saw it before. And so that captured my attention. I'm thinking, wow, that's kind of an odd choice of words. And so I looked in other translations. No other translation uses the word indignant. Nearly every one of the other translations says moved, that Jesus was moved with compassion. They don't use the term indignant. Boy, those sound like two different expressions, right? Indignant and move with compassion. They don't seem to. I don't know how they match that up. There are a few translations that say move with pity or felt sorry or was having mercy. But trust me, the overwhelming majority of translations where the NIV uses indignant, they use move with compassion. Did a little research. It appears that the New International Version translators use different source materials for the basis of their translation. And that's why there's this difference. I'll make an observation concerning the word indignant a little bit. But for the most part, um, as I read through this and studied it, I have to go with the phrase moved with compassion. I think that's a, I think it's a better translation. I think it's, I think it's more accurate to the narrative, to the nature of Jesus. Um, and to what we see of Jesus and the way he operated with people in Scripture. So I'm going to use the word, the words move with compassion. Move with compassion. We are most often, as human beings, moved with compassion 
when we meet sick people. We visit someone in the hospital. It's like, oh, I feel so bad for you. I want to pray for you. Someone comes to church. They haven't been feeling well. Move with compassion, right? Lepers, however, they did not usually arouse compassion. The whole appearance, their whole appearance was just too repulsive. And they usually made people feel disgust instead of compassion. Now, compassion means sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings and misfortunes of others. It means that we, it's compassion. We share a common passion. Communion would be a common union. Compassion is a, is a common passion. I've heard compassion defined this way. I like this one. It means entering into another person's pain. That's what it means to have compassion. I feel what you feel. The compassion that Jesus had was empathetic. He empathetically had compassion for people. He felt their pain. The late great author and theologian Henry Nouwen said this concerning compassion. He said, let us not underestimate how hard it is to be compassionate. Compassion is hard because it requires the inner disposition to go with others to places where they're weak, vulnerable, lonely, and broken. But this is not our spontaneous response to suffering. We desire most to do away with suffering by fleeing from it or finding a quick cure for it. Great book titled Compassion by Henry Nouwen. Jesus didn't run from this leper. Luke chapter 5 verse 12 telling the same account says that the man was full of leprosy. Right? So that he wasn't new to this disease. It, had, it means that this was in advanced stages that the, they had been with him for a while. This man's whole life, as well as his, as his body, was literally rotting away. And Jesus didn't run from him. In that culture, if the leper didn't run from you, you ran from them. I'm sure it was shocking He's traveling with his disciples. I'm sure that they, they were in defensive and protective mode. Could you imagine? But Jesus didn't run. And get this. We've already seen that Jesus healed many people, and he did it in different ways. And he could have chosen to heal this man any way he wanted to, but how did he do it? The text tells us that he touched the man. He could have spoken a word. He could have just thought a thought. And the leper could have been healed. He could have done it from a distance. Hey, you over there. The leper on the right. Be healed. Be clean, Jesus. He could have done it any way he wanted to, right? But Jesus used touch. Why is this so important? Because it was, they were forbidden to touch lepers. This man probably hadn't been touched in a very long time. Certainly no loving touch. It was against Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. If you did, you'd have been considered unclean for an extended period of time. Jesus touched him anyway. And as soon as Jesus touched him, he was no longer a leper. He was healed. Mark 1, 42 says, Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was clean. He was cleansed. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful? Could you imagine how transformative it would be for that man in that moment? Right? Living long time with leprosy. He's in advanced stages. His body's filled with leprosy. He's probably not far from death. And Jesus just chooses to use touch as the method of bringing healing. What a loving thing to do. What a tender thing to do. So a question about willingness. In verse 40, the man presents Jesus with a question. Challenging him? I don't know. Maybe begging him. He's got to be desperate, right? He says, if you're willing, if you are willing, is the question from verse 40. And Jesus' response 
in word and action was this. I am willing. I am willing. Such good news. Jesus was willing to heal. I believe he is still willing to heal the sick. It was life-giving to this leper on that day. And it's life-giving to us as well this day. If there was any indignation, I can I don't know for sure, but I I suppose that maybe this is where the NIV translators are getting it. If there was any indignation on Jesus' part, it certainly had nothing to do with the fact that he was approached by a leper or that the leper came with a request to be healed. If anything, if there was any indignation, it had to do with the question. Are you willing? Jesus' response would be this, am I willing? Of course I'm willing. This is why I've come. I've stated that I came to heal the sick and to raise the dead. Am I willing? You bet I'm willing. I am willing. Let me show you how willing I am. I'm going to grab you with both my hands. Get that leprosy off of you. Be clean. No longer. And I'll use the very words that you've used to keep other people away from you. Unclean. Unclean. And I say to you this, be clean. And boom, he was clean. If there was any indignation at all, it has to be with the question, are you willing? And not with the request to be healed. That fits Jesus. Doesn't that fit him? That's the Jesus I know. So first he touched the man, and next he declared his willingness. I am willing. And then he simply declared he commanded, be clean. First, Jesus demonstrated his compassion with a touch and with declaring his willingness. And then he displayed his power and exercised his authority with two simple little words, be clean. Mark indeed is a man of few words. And when it comes to healing and deliverance, it seems like Jesus is as well. Almost done. Apparently, Jesus didn't use signs and wonders for church growth. Matter of fact, just the opposite. He told the leper here not to say anything to anyone. Could you imagine? He knew what happened from the synagogue the morning before, and everybody showed up at Peter's house. This is a little bit maybe more dramatic than casting a demon out of a church guy. Right? And this is what he tells them, verses 43 and 44. He gives them a strong warning. Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing. As a testimony to them. And is that what the guy did? Nope, that's not what he did at all. You know, I have a hard time blaming him. Could you imagine? He'd been a leper for all this time and now he's clean. I don't think I could kick my mouth shut either. I think I told everybody. He may not even have been recognizable anymore. Right? And now his face is restored, his hands are restored. This former leper shows what I'm guessing is well intentioned disobedience to Jesus. No doubt, overwhelming joy. He's totally excited at being healed. Probably just got the best of him. He's probably just too excited to keep it to himself. Verse 45 of Mark chapter 1 tells us this. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Right? He's telling everybody, hey, I'm healed. I don't have leprosy anymore. Right? I'm thinking, man, if that's me, there's people I want to hug. I want to kiss my wife. I want to hold my children. I want to shake hands with my best friend. I, I, I don't know if I could contain it. I have a hard time being upset with this guy. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. So why did Jesus tell him to be quiet? Because Jesus still wanted to be able to move about freely. He wanted to be able to connect with people. And that's kind of shot now. Kind of like, yeah, Jesus, I know you told me not to tell anyone. Well, what could go wrong with doing it, right? He probably meant well. But it did have consequences. And they were that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. It's probably always best to just simply obey what Jesus tells us to do, even if we don't understand why. 
Just a word about touch. I think it's so profound that Jesus did it this way. There were two things needed for touch. Risk and reception. Risk and reception. Jesus risked. He left the third heaven, pierced the membrane of the second heaven, entered the first heaven in our form. Why? To touch us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't have to. I said before, he had done this incarnation thing any way he wanted to. But he did, it, he did it in such a way so that God could touch man. So that God could touch humanity. He wanted there to be touch. The incarnation is an exercise in physical touch. It's God reaching out and touching men and women. Really, what we celebrate at Christmas time is the touch of God upon the earth. I believe it's one of the reasons why the enemy has so violated touch in our culture today and throughout the ages. There's hardly a woman in this room that hasn't been touched inappropriately, inappropriately and scarcely a boy. Some have been touched violently, some have been touched inappropriately. Maybe worst of all, some haven't been touched at all. But just as with this leper, Jesus extends his hand and his heart to lovingly touch us in the places of our deepest need, our bodies, our souls, and our spirits. The ability to touch, man, it's a gift from God. Look how he created us. He gave us skin and fingers and nerve endings. And with these amazing instruments, we can sense things like pressure, texture, and heat and cold. We can sense love based on touch. I think about the first day I held, held my firstborn in my arms. That tender little skin, that cute little face. Yeah, it was amazing. Used appropriately, touch can create goosebumps. Inappropriately, bruises. Much, much worse. I hope to see this God-given gift of touch redeemed. It needs to be redeemed. That Jesus would come with his power to touch us and heal us and change us. Okay. So I want to do ministry time like we've done the, the past few weeks. But I want to start it off with a uh, little video. And so watch this video and then I will give... Uh, I'll give some comments about it.
Isn't that cute? So why did I show that video? It's a metaphor, right? Here, these ducks were cre- these are water birds. They were created for the water. When God designed these ducks, they were designed to live in the water. But these ducks lived a reality that they've never seen or experienced water before. And so they, they get rescued, right? They've been in bondage. They've been in captivity. They've been rescued from their captivity and now being released into the water. We're those ducks. As Christians, we were created for the realm of the Spirit. That was God's design from the very beginning. But for some of us, we lived our whole lives not knowing we were ducks. Not knowing that we were created for the water. And so what happens? They introduce the ducks to the water. They bring them right to the edge. They all run away. They, They try to corral them to get them in the water again and again. Finally, they get in the water. What's the duck's first reaction? Run right out of the water back on the land. And then eventually, one by one, the ducks are thrown into the water, and they get it. They go, oh, this is a good thing. It's not as scary as I thought of. Hey, I was made for this. Guys, that's us. That little video, that's a picture of my four years here at Charlottetown Vineyard, okay? There are so many people that realize they were ducks, man. They were made for the water. I said, come on, the water's good. Trust me, the water's good. Corral them over. Oh, they run away from the water. No, 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 let's try and get the water. The water's good. You're going to love it. Trust me, you're going to love this. I don't know. Eventually, a few of them get in the water, and they run right out of the water, back onto to the dry land. You know what? I think the end of that video is kind of where we're at now. A lot of people have gotten in the water, and they're realizing, hey, this is good. This is fun. I was made for this. And so this is what ministry time is about. This, what this time is about. That we would have fun in the water. Guys, you were made for this. God created you for this. And it ought to be fun and it ought to be a delight. So let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the life of the Spirit. We are men and women who want to live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the desire of our heart, oh God. I pray that right now you would stir up the gifts of the Spirit. We ask especially that you would stir up gifts for healing. And Lord, that you would stir up revelatory gifts. Give us words and knowledge. Lord, what are you doing and how can we do it with you? Give us words and knowledge to let us know what you're doing here today. And then give us the courage, the base, the, the grace, the boldness to jump in the water and do it with you. Amen? Okay. Anybody have a word of knowledge? Who wants to be the first one in the water? <laughs> yeah. Anybody like to share a word of knowledge today? I know it's scary to be the first one. What do you got, Jill? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you need prayer. Okay. Anybody here feeling like a warmth on their hands or a tingling on their fingertips? Sometimes when the Holy Spirit's present, you can feel that. You feel that, Karina? Yeah, why don't you go over? Jill, why don't you go over to Karina and she'll pray for you. That's good. Anybody have a word of knowledge they want to share this morning? Yeah. You know, just like Jesus was uh, willing to pray for them or willing to call upon God's name. Just, but how do we get them to, yeah. to know that the healing's here and that happening here and uh, uh, 
that's that's so thank you do it Lord you know how to get them here Jesus didn't seem to have a problem drawing a crowd is how to how to have a quiet time not surrounded by them. that'd be a nice problem to have get them here Lord did somebody else have a word of knowledge yeah um, the last few days um, God's been speaking to me about water water So is there anybody here today where maybe at some point during the week you felt like you got slimed? You know what I mean? Maybe not necessarily you did anything wrong, but you're in some environment and you walked away from it thinking, oh, I just got to get it off, get it off. And maybe you're having a hard time getting it off. Is there anybody who's, you've had that experience and you like some prayer? That, does that fit anyone? Yeah? Then, uh, why don't you pray for a Carolyn? That'd be great. I know, Nay. I got two things. What'd you get? Um, one was pain in the neck. Pain in the neck? It's not me, is it? No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> and the second thing was um, discouragement to the point of almost despair. Hmm. Okay, so why don't you go in the back, Nay? And uh, if either one of those words fit you, um, neck pain or an overwhelming sense of being discouraged, uh, then... Why don't you go to Nadine and she'll be happy to pray for you. Brian? Um, I just have a few verses that I've been um, kind of came back to me this morning. I don't know whether it's a word of knowledge, just illumination. I feel like, um, and I went and looked them up first service. It's um, Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Right. Let your request be made known before God. Anxiety is a, a real battle. Um, I've battled uh, anxiety, anxiety attacks in the past, and I know what a struggle it could be. If, you're, if you've had um, panic attacks or anxiety attacks, or if um, 
if there's just been a heightened sense of uh, stress and anxiety with this, the stuff of life uh, for you, if that's you today, please let Brian pray for you and uh, get it off, right? Wouldn't it be good to, to get that off? Anybody else? John, why don't you come on up to give, lead us in a final song? And um, let me just, uh, let me pray. I wanted to pray, when I put this message together, I felt so much weight on the, on the, um, on the issue of touch. And that I really do want to see touch redeemed. So why don't we all stand? And I don't want to ask anyone to, to raise a hand or you know, say if you've been touched inappropriately, I wouldn't want to put you in that awkward spot. But I want to pray for all of us. Oh, God. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, would you redeem this wonderful gift of touch for every man, woman, and child here today? Redeem touch, oh God. For anyone who's been touched inappropriately, redeem touch. Lord, for anyone who's been touched violently, redeem touch. Lord, for those of us where touch is absent from our lives, maybe emotionally we feel like that leper we just haven't been touched redeem touch Lord I pray that one of the ways that you would do it do it with people but Lord would you touch us would, would we know your touch let us know the, the, the redemption of touch in our lives Lord I pray that you would give us your compassion you were moved with compassion move us with that same compassion. Lord, you had eyes to see. Lord, give us eyes to see the, the present day cultural lepers and outcasts and show us, how, Lord, how we can love them the way you loved that man that day. Give us your courage. Give us your faith, Jesus, to reach out and touch the untouchables. Lord, give us a willingness equal to your own willingness. Lord, I pray that, that we would walk in the fullness of the authority that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us power to heal the sick and to perform signs, wonders, and miracles. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? John's going to lead us in a final song, and then you're dismissed to enjoy the rest of your Sunday.